Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's so good to have you here. And those of you who are joining us online, welcome as well. Dads, happy Father's Day. May, oh, yeah, yeah. I hope that you get all of the bacon that your heart desires today as you celebrate with your families. As it happens, this week that has led up to Father's Day has been a week that has been focused on marriage in my mind. Uh, My wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary this week. And as I look around, I see, thank you, I see a couple of other couples that celebrated significant anniversaries over the course of this week. And then on Friday and Saturday, I had an opportunity to lead a rehearsal and then a wedding for one of our young couples over at Shakopee. And now today, marriage is the subject that we come to in our study called Wholehearted. If you've been here, you know that Wholehearted is a study in which we're looking at the sins and mistakes of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament book of Malachi and saying, hey, let's not do those. We're looking at the fact that Israel didn't love and honor God, and we want to learn from their mistakes because we want to love and honor God. And a couple of weeks ago, we saw that in order to love and honor God, we need to sacrifice ourselves wholeheartedly to him, everything we are and everything we have. And last week, we saw that in order to love and honor God, we need to be wholehearted in our obedience to him and walk the path. And now this week, we're going to see that in order to love and honor God, we need to be faithful to God by being faithful to our covenant marriages. Now, in order to understand how loving and honoring God relates to being faithful in our marriages, we need to understand God's big idea for marriage. Because when God designed marriage, he designed it to reflect the perfect relationship that he has within himself. Yes, that is strange language. Perfect relationship he has within himself. The Bible teaches us that God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, and yet one God. And within the Trinity, God has perfect relationship. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says... God is love. And because God is love, he can perfectly express love within himself, within the Trinity. He's able to participate in all of the essential elements of love. It's important to be able to show love to others. It's important to receive love from others. And it is important to observe love between those that we love. Sometimes we get focused on giving love and receiving love, and we don't necessarily recognize the great joy it brings to our heart to see two people that we love love each other well. Today's Father's Day, and my kids may do something nice for me. Hint, hint. I'm not looking at them right now intentionally, so that, no. Uh, they, They may. Who knows? But I have to say that as a dad, as as nice as it is when my kids do things that are loving for me, what really brings joy to my heart is when my kids love each other well. Parents, you you understand what I'm saying? There's nothing that brings joy to my heart than when my my son loves my daughter well and when my daughter loves my son well. And, And God is able to observe love because he is Trinity. 
the Son can show love to the Father, the Father receives that love, and the Holy Spirit has the opportunity to observe that love. The Holy Spirit expresses love to the Father, and the Father receives that love, and the Son has an opportunity to observe that love. And all three of those key elements of love, expressing love, receiving love, and observing love, are fully participated in within the Trinity from eternity past to eternity future in every moment of every second. God is perfectly loving within the Trinity. And God wanted to share that perfection of relationship And so he made people. Genesis chapter 1, God says, Let us make mankind in our image. Right? We recognize God didn't say, Let me make mankind in my image. In the very first chapter of the Bible, the Trinity is present. Let us make mankind in our relational image. Just as we have perfection within relationship within the Trinity, let's make people who can experience the joy of that same loving perfection in relationship. But in Genesis chapter 2, there is only Adam. And even though Adam and God have a relationship that is totally unhindered by sin, they're able to walk and talk together in the garden, and there is no issues because of sin that comes between them, God says, It's still not right. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Six times in the first chapter of Genesis, God declares what he has made to be good, even very good. And yet he looks at Adam's loneliness and he says, even though Adam and I walk and talk together in perfect loving relationship, there is something not right here. What isn't right? What isn't good? Even though Adam and God have perfect loving relationship with each other, they relate on a line, if you will, instead of in the three-person loving covenant relationship that represents the Trinity. And so what does God do? Right? God brings Eve along. And now within this three-person covenant of marriage, people can reflect the perfectly loving relationship that we see within the Trinity. Adam is able to express love for God. God receives that love, and Eve gets to observe that love between Adam and God. Eve gets to love Adam, and Adam receives that love, and God's heart is filled with joy when he sees his children loving each other well. And that is God's design for all of our marriages. When my wife and I married each other, we entered into a three-person covenant, God, wife, and husband, in which we are able to show love, receive love, and observe love in everything that we do. So that I get to watch my wife love God well, and God receives that love, and I get to observe it. And my wife loves me well. And I receive it, and God gets to observe it, and he loves that. And this is God's design for our marriages, that they are three-person covenant of love. And with that design in mind, we can understand better what Malachi is saying in our passage today, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. You can turn there or click there in your device. And as we look at that passage I want to address three different groups this morning. 
I want to address those who are not yet married, but will get married someday. And as I look around for some of you that may be two or three years in the future, and for others, it's clearly 20 years away at least. I also want to address those who are currently married, who are married, and also want to address, finally, those who have been divorced. But let's start with those who will get married in the future and look at the first three verses of our passage and what it teaches about selecting a spouse. Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? As Israelites, we're all united as one under Father God. And so why are we being faithless to him? And why are we being faithless to each other? And as we'll see in the next two verses, this isn't just any faithlessness. They're being faithless to God's design for marriage. The next two verses. Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. What is happening in this passage that is worth the punishment of being cut off from the tents of Jacob, being cut off entirely from Israel? What's happening is people are marrying wives who don't worship God who marry foreign, who worship foreign gods. And God is saying, this is an abomination to me. This shouldn't happen. Nothing breaks down God's design for the three-person covenant of loving marriage, like bringing someone into that covenant who doesn't love and honor God. That breaks it down immediately. And so God says in the Old Testament to his people, I don't want you marrying people who don't worship me. Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about this. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, those who don't worship God, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. The priority of God's people is always what? God. Right? The priority of God's people is always God. And so they would never bring someone who didn't love and honor God into marriage relationship because God is the priority. In the New Testament, God puts it like this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The three-person covenant relationship that God intended is made for Two people, a husband and a wife, who love God and are pursuing God. And God says, I can't have you bring someone into covenant with me who doesn't acknowledge me, who doesn't love me or honor me. And so the teaching is clear for those who are yet to get married in the future. Choose a spouse that is running after God. That's God's desire for you. As a matter of fact, as we read through the scriptures... God doesn't have a huge amount of advice about picking a spouse other than choose a spouse who is running after God and pursuing him. If we choose a spouse who doesn't love and honor God, it is an expression that we don't love and honor God in our own life. 
because we know God has called us to choose a spouse that loves and honors him. And when we say, well, we're going to marry this person anyway, essentially what we are saying is, God, I want what I want over what you've told me. And so to, love some, or to marry someone who does not love and honor God is an expression of our own lack of love and honor for God. But, but on the opposite side, the very positive side, when we choose a spouse, and our number one criteria is that they love God and honor him and are running after him, we love and honor God through that choice. There are certain things as dads that we tell our kids so often that their eyes roll back into their heads when they hear us saying it again. Right? Any of those out there, kids, you've heard your dad say it so often where you're like, are you kidding me again? And a couple of those things that my kids have heard me say so often that they roll their eyes at me when I say it again is, one, it is fundamentally important. There is no bigger human decision than you will make than who you're going to marry. It will determine the course of the rest of your life. It will determine who you become as a person. And then second, which they hear me say all the time, is it is so much better to stay single for the rest of your life than to marry the wrong person. I have done the marriage counseling to back that up. It it is so much better to stay single the rest of your life than to marry the wrong person. And God says, hey, you know what? The one criteria I want you to be clear about is if that person doesn't know me and isn't pursuing me, they're the wrong person. And, And so God's call for those of us who are not yet married, choose a spouse that is running after God. I hope you hear me use the language running after God and not just find a spouse who's a Christian. Because we can find a spouse who will check the box Christian on the census. 80% of America checks the box Christian on the census. God wants us to marry someone with whom we are equally yoked, who is running after the Lord and helps us to run after the Lord all the harder. And that's God's desire for us if we are to be married in the future. Find a spouse who loves and honors God. We can encourage them to love and honor God, and they will do the same in us. So I see a number of you out there right now who are married and who are saying, hey, the Choose Wisely train has left the station for me. Right? So what do you got for me? Well, the next few verses have some teaching for those of us who are already married. Let's begin in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. God's not accepting their offerings. He's rejecting them and he is not blessing them in their worship. That invites a natural question. What's that question? Why not? And that's the question they ask at the beginning of verse 14. But you say, why does he not? And here is the answer to that question. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. How were the Jews being faithless to their God? They were being faithless by divorcing their wives. They were actually divorcing their wives who followed after God in order to marry women who did not follow after God. And God says, those of you who are divorcing your wives are being faithless to the wife of your covenant marriage, and that is faithless to me. God is against divorce, and we see some of the reasons here in this passage why God is against divorce. Because it does tremendous damage. It does damage, for example, to our spouse. A husband and a wife who get divorced experience damage in that relationship. They experience emotional damage as they go through that divorce. This passage says that they are not loving each other as they get divorced. Those things stand in opposition to one another. As a matter of fact, God says here, a man who divorces his wife covers his garments with violence. It's a word that means to do damage or wreak havoc. God wants us to understand that when we choose divorce, we are wreaking havoc on our relationship. In Malachi's day, when a husband chose to divorce his wife, this was a male-dominated economy. And so he turned her out of his house, and now she had very few options in terms of how she was to make a living And she lived with the shame of being put out by her husband. It it was a violent, terribly destructive choice that a husband would make in order to put his wife out of his house. Now, we live in very different economic times than that. But let's recognize that divorce is still destructive to the people who go through it. I have never walked through a divorce with a couple or seen a couple get a divorce where damage wasn't done to the husband and the wife. And often the emotional and relational damage that is done lasts for years, if not for a lifetime. And so God says, I'm against divorce, you guys. It does damage to your spouse, to the husband and the wife. Second, we recognize in this passage, it does damage to our soul. God says in verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? When we marry another, we are united to them as one. Our soul is united with their soul. This is more than just a contract with the state. We are joining ourselves in covenant before God and we become one. The word used here for become one is a word that is used of two substances that come together and form a new substance that can't be torn back apart. Uh, My son gave me an example of this a couple of years ago when he wore a shirt one day and put a name tag on it. And then we think the shirt went through the wash and then went through the dryer, all with the name tag on it. 
And the name tag and the shirt became one new substance. And when we tried to take the name tag off of the shirt, it did not do good things for the name tag. And actually, he and I were looking at the shirt together yesterday. He's since gotten concrete all over it. I was going to use it as an actual physical illustration, but it's an even bigger mess now because (laughs) there's all kinds of stuff attached to it. But as we looked at it yesterday, the shirt is still ruined. It still has that patch where the name tag was taken off because these two substances became one, and it did damage to them to try and separate them back out. And God says, this is what happens within divorce. Two become one in marriage, and it is my intention that they never come back apart. And if they do, tremendous damage is done to our soul. We also see in this passage that divorce does damage to our kids if kids are involved. God says here, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. One of God's great desires for marriage is that godly offspring who love and honor God would come out of our homes. And that happens best with a husband and wife who are living in faithful, covenant, loving relationship with each other, pursuing God together. But children who come out of homes where there is bad marriage or divorce, they face far greater challenges to being children who learn to love God and pursue him. Psychology Today, talking about children who come out of divorced homes, says they are significantly more likely to experience academic difficulties, behavioral problems, psychological issues, and failed marriages of their own. Gallup says more than that, that if parents divorce while they are a part of a church, that their kids are far less likely to remain in the church when they are adults. That isn't a shock to us, is it? And I absolutely love that God has overcome those statistics in the lives of so many people who sit in front of me right now, including my wife. God has overcome those statistics about divorce and produced something different in the lives of so many. And yet, those are still the statistics. And for kids to grow up and live godly lives, their best opportunity is to grow up in a home where parents live in loving, covenant, faithful marriage with each other and pursue God with each other. Divorce does damage does damage to our spouse, to our soul, and to kids if they are involved. But most of all, divorce does damage to God's covenant design. His covenant design is that we would be involved in a three-person covenant relationship in which we are giving and receiving and observing love, and divorce rips that covenant design apart. And so positively put, what's God's desire for us who are married? It's to live in faithful covenant marriage. Verse 14 says that she is the wife of covenant. That's the design here. We are put in a three-person covenant, and God's Spirit is a part of that covenant. Now, the idea of a three-person covenant is very different than the world's idea of marriage. Because the world's idea of marriage is a two-person contract. 
How does a two-person contract work? If my wife and I got married and we understood marriage to be a two-person contract, we would understand marriage to be about her doing her part and then I will do my part. That's how contracts work, right? You live up to your end of the bargain. I live up to my end of the bargain. What's the problem with a two-person contract understanding of marriage? You live up to your end of the bargain, then I'll live up to my end of the bargain. The problem is we're imperfect, broken people. And day in and day out, we don't live up to our end of the bargain, do we? And so if we enter into marriage with an understanding of two-person contract, you live up to your end of the bargain, then I'll live up to my end of the bargain, then it isn't very long before I don't live up to my end of the bargain. And I act in selfishness rather than love. Instead of going 50% in order to fulfill my end of the contract, I only go 45% of the way one day. And in a contractual understanding of marriage, what is my wife's response to that? Well, if he's not going to fulfill his end of the contract, then I don't need to fulfill my end of the contract. And so she goes back to 45%. And I see that, and what do I do? I give a little less in marriage, and she sees that, and what does she do? She gives a little less in marriage. Until we are that couple that has sat on my couch in marriage counseling where the wife is saying about the husband, I wouldn't do that if they didn't do that. And the husband says about the wife, well, the only reason I do that is because they do that. And they are so desperately looking to blame each other for breaking the contract of marriage in order to explain why they have acted in the way that they did. But God's design for marriage is not a two-person contract. You do your part and then I'll do mine. God's design for marriage is a three-person covenant. She is the wife of covenant, verse 14 says. It is a three-person covenant in which my spirit is present. Because marriage is a three-person covenant, I'll put the diagram back up, I understand that my primary commitment in my marriage is not to my wife. My primary commitment in my marriage is to my God, who I have made a covenant with, to treat my wife with love and honor no matter how she treats me. And my wife's primary commitment in marriage is to her God because this is a covenant with him to love and honor me no matter how I have treated her. We're not in contractual marriage. Oh, you fell short, therefore I can fall short. Oh, you fell short, therefore I can fall short. Instead, we enter into covenant with God to love and honor our spouse 100%, no matter the mistakes that they make today, no matter what goes on. Also, because we are in three-person covenant, this is very important, I recognize that within my marriage, my wife's primary identity is not as my wife. Because we are in this three-person covenant, my wife's primary identity in our marriage is as a daughter of God. And my primary identity in our marriage is not as Erica's husband. My primary identity in marriage is as a son of God. Therefore, every time that I address my wife with my words or act towards her, I need to recognize that I am addressing a daughter of the King of Kings and do so appropriately. 
Because that is the kind of love and honor that a daughter of the king of kings, that a son of the king of kings deserves. Within the three-person covenant, our primary commitment is to God, to love and honor our spouse, even when they don't love and honor us. And I've got great news here about living in faithful covenant marriage. When we live in faithful covenant marriage as followers of Jesus, it is a witness to God. Jesus says as he is praying to the Father in John chapter 17, the glory that you have given me, that's the Father, the glory that you, the Father, have given me, I have given to them, my followers, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus says, I want the world to know that I am sent by Father God. But he also says that is dependent upon something. What is it dependent upon? Our oneness and unity as his followers. He says, the world believing that the Father sent me is dependent upon you guys being one and being united. Now, this certainly has applications for us as a church. Our unity and oneness are a direct testimony to the power of Jesus Christ and that he is Lord and Savior. That is also true of the way that churches work with each other and the unity that we experience from church to church. It it reflects to the world the goodness of Jesus and his power. But I would contend that it is also true within our marriages that the oneness and unity in our marriages is a reflection of Jesus and the gospel. And, And there is perhaps no worse reflection on Jesus than when a husband and wife who claim his name live in selfish marriage, wind up in broken marriage and headed towards divorce. And there is no greater glory that God gets than when a husband and wife live in a way that is loving and faithful within that three-person covenant. God has called us to be different than the world. And one of the ways that we are different than the world around us is the way that we live in marriage. We are surrounded by a world that is filled with selfish, contractual marriage. And God says, I'm calling you to something totally different. I'm calling you to loving, faithful, covenantal marriage. And when you live in that, it reflects my goodness to the world around you. What is God's call on those of us who are married? Live in faithful covenant marriage. I want to finally address those who have been through divorce. What I would like to say to those of you who have been through divorce is this. I want you to understand that today, God's call in your life is to live in forgiveness. There are some places and some communities in which divorce is treated as the unforgivable sin. But that runs entirely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. There are no unforgivable sins. And if we have confessed our sin before the Lord and repented of any wrongdoing in our life, God says we are totally and completely cleansed of that sin. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there might not be repercussions for years to come because of the decisions that we have made. But we are forgiven before God when we have confessed that sin before him and repented of it. God doesn't want us living in shame about what took place in the past. If we've confessed it, it's done, it's gone. 1 John chapter 1 says it is completely erased and removed. Psalm 103 says it has been taken and it has been flung away further than you can see. God wants you to live in that forgiveness that he purchased through the death of his son on the cross and to move forward in righteousness. You can't do anything about those days that are behind, but you can do something about the days that are ahead. And God calls each and every one of us to move forward in righteousness and unity with him. If you've been through divorce this morning, I want you to understand God's call in your life is to live without shame and to live in forgiveness. God says that the church is his bride. In places like Ephesians 5, he calls the church his bride and says we enter into covenant loving marriage with him. And he has given us an opportunity within our human marriages to reflect that gospel truth of being in covenant loving relationship with our God. And that's our desire for our marriages. If you're struggling in marriage right now, I want to encourage you to go on our website and go to the care page. And there you're going to find in that care page something called marriage mentoring. And we would love to connect you with marriage mentors who can help walk with you uh, through marriage. Spend time in in counsel and prayer and care for you in your marriage. And, And I want to pray for us because I don't know that there's anything that we can do that is greater for our marriages then be praying for them because God's spirit works, right? It isn't just a husband and a wife. God says, I have placed my spirit among you in this three-person covenant. And so we want to be praying for our marriages. Just a reminder that as has been true each week, there are discussion questions that you can go through with your family or go through with your small group. They're available online. You certainly can uh, pull your phone out if you want them and take a picture. But let me pray for us and pray for our marriages right now. Father, we are so thankful that you have given us partners to walk through this life. We recognize all of the possibilities that there are within the covenant of marriage. The possibility to care for one another in a world that is so devoid of care. The possibility to be kind to each other in an unkind world. We recognize within marriage the opportunity to lift each other up when life gets challenging and to celebrate your provision together when you give us more than we could ask or imagine. And we are thankful for all of those possibilities that exist within marriage. And I pray for the marriages that exist within this church that you would strengthen them, that you would help us to live in love, Lord, to act in love towards one another, whether we feel like it or not, to be obedient to your call of being loving. God, we pray that you would use our marriages to shine the light of the gospel of Jesus to to the world so that people may know that you were sent by the Father and that forgiveness is possible through you. I pray now for your spirit's strengthening and power in each and every one of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.